Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hospice Project, a podcast sponsored by Reliance Hospice and Palliative Care in Palm Desert, California. My name is the Reverend Dr. Don Stouter, and I'll be your host for this series of conversations centered on what hospice is, who it helps, and how we can best support our patients, families, volunteers, and staff. I'm the bereavement and volunteer manager at Reliance, and I'm a career hospital and hospice chaplain with nearly 40 years worth of experience in healthcare. You can find out more about me, including my articles and books, at donaldstouter.com. That's D-O-N-A-L-D-S-T-O-U-D-E-R.com. So sit back and enjoy our episode. You're listening to The Hospice Project on the Anchor Podcast Network. Well, hello and welcome, my friends. You've found your way to the Hospice Project, sponsored by Reliance Hospice and broadcast on the Anchor Podcast Network. If you'd like to make a contribution to our podcast or leave a question for us to answer on air, just visit our podcast website at anchor.com slash hospice project. On today's show, I want to talk a little bit about um, emotional resilience. And let me just sort of paint the picture of, uh, of the environment that I'm coming from as we have this conversation. It's January 26th, 2021. We've been inside of a of a pandemic for a year. Uh, we've gone through uh, enormous political and racial upheaval in, uh, in the country where I'm broadcasting from, the United States. And so a lot of people, um, especially those of us who work in healthcare, are worn out, uh, uh, wrung out. Uh, uh, there is enormous uncertainty, confusion, and fear. All these triggers are around us, right? Whether you know, you're uh, uh, at home or at work or working from home or you lost your job or you're having to look for another job or you're trying to figure out how to take care of your family or pay the rent or whatever it happens to be. There's all these triggers like being confined at home and feeling helpless and sometimes feeling lonely. There's also grief, right? There's losses. We may have have lost a loved one to COVID-19 or something else in this past year. We may have had friends that had losses. We may just feel a sort of ambiguous grief surrounding us all the time because there is so much loss uh, uh, encircling us. Or maybe even we are, are trying to figure out who our heroes are. All of this kind of leads to crisis fatigue or, or adrenal fatigue. It's as if you've been triggered so many times that there's just nothing left to respond with. And, and so now we start to think about how do we prepare for a new normal. What does a new normal look like? Because that old normal, we're probably never ever going to go back to that. Let me give you some definitions just to sort of uh, uh, frame this topic. Moral distress is the notion that I know what to do, but I'm constrained from doing it. I'm kept from doing it. Maybe I'm a nurse and um, and some regulation or or coworker or supervisor I work with keeps me from doing what I think is right. Uh, moral injury is when we witness or engage in a behavior that goes against our own moral norms. We're asked to do something that we explicitly don't believe in. 
trauma is an event or a series of events or a set of circumstances that's experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening and that has lasting adverse effects on that person's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, and even spiritual well-being. And vicarious or secondary trauma is the way in which other people's trauma may impact us. And how do you know that you're being affected, right? How do you know that that all of this, uh, all of this crazy that's going on there, out there, is affecting you, or even is affecting your coworkers or your family members? Well, some symptoms you can look for, and I'm willing to bet a million bucks that all of you have experienced at least one of these. But some symptoms that you can look for: anger or blame, apathy, chronic lateness, cynicism, depression, a diminished series of accomplishment, anger, or displaced anger, what some people call snark, exhaustion, uh, all kinds of existential struggles, trying to figure out what you believe in, gastrointestinal complaints, boy, that one's really hit me, headaches, high expectations, hopelessness, intrusive thoughts, irritability, low self-esteem, nightmares, sleep disturbances, workaholism, all of these things would ordinarily be symptoms of trauma, of overwork, of, of anxiety, of burnout, but they're even more present uh, in ourselves and in almost everyone surrounding us after a full year now of, of pandemic and societal distress. And so we have psychological impacts, we have physiological impacts, and we have behavioral impacts, right? I just mentioned a lot of the psychological ones, helpless anger, fearful, guilty, confused. Physiologically, we have this fight or flight thing going on or off in our bodies all the time that can affect your blood pressure, your blood sugar, all kinds of things. And of course, behavioral impacts of distress. We can either become quieter or chattier, slower or busier, right? Eat more, eat less, have more compassion, have less compassion, sleep more, sleep less. All these changes are just continuing signs that obviously something's going on in our body. And ultimately, this can take us to some really scary dark places, right? We can start to think of ourselves as failures, or we can just be completely disillusioned, feel completely defeated, feel like everything around us is collapsing, feel absolutely and utterly powerless. There are risks associated with us feeling this way, and a fair amount of, of, uh, uh, of research has been done on these things. But if you have a history of trauma, or if you have a history of problems with boundaries or not having good coping strategies, you're at an even higher risk of not being resilient, of not being able to get through times as tough as these. And even organizations can have real risks when it comes to trying to deal with um, uh, these issues. The work environment, the organizational structure, the organizational policies, all of these things can lead to this notion of a lack of control, right? And we can think of that in a work setting as work overloads or lack of rewards or lack of community, especially if we're working from home, or start to have questions around fairness or value conflicts. There's a saying uh, I'd like to read to you. Haraku Murakami wrote this and it says, and once the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through how you manage to survive. You won't even be sure whether the storm is really over, but one thing is certain, when you come out of the storm, 
you won't be the same person who walked in. That's what the storm is all about. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Hospice Project on the Anchor Podcast Network. Well, welcome back to the show. You're listening to The Hospice Project on the Anchor Podcast Network, and I'm Don Stouter. We've been chatting about resilience. And in the previous segment, I think I talked a lot about all these sort of incoming missiles of what uh, what being constantly triggered looks like and how it affects us psychologically and physically. And, and, um, and so let's talk about resilience now. Let's define it first. Resilience occurs when a person is able to evolve beyond adversity to an increased level of practiced wisdom while experiencing a continual or expanding capacity for compassion. That's Cochrane, 2015, defining what resilience is. Really good article uh, was written in the New Yorker uh, all the way back in 2016, but you would have thought that it was written for our time right now and 2020 and 2021. Um, it was called How People Learn to Become Resilient by Maria Konnikova, uh, uh, New Yorker Magazine, February 11, 2016. And one of the, of the quotes in that article was this, frame adversity as a challenge and you become more flexible and able to deal with it, to move on, to learn from it and to grow. Focus on it and frame it as a threat and a potentially traumatic event becomes an enduring problem, you become more inflexible and more likely to be negatively affected. So if we think of resilience as sort of a superpower, a, a, a protective shield surrounding our bodies, what are the factors in that superpower? What are the factors in that protective shield? Well, there's about six I want to talk about, and they include perceptions and meaning making the idea that we can either learn optimism or we can learn helplessness. Internalized locuses of control. What can we do in this situation? Focusing on what is possible, not what we can't do. Uh, our connection and community, really working on building our social contacts, our social and, and familial supports. Uh, adaptability, flexibility, and coping which requires a little bit of creativity, but also making sure that we're safe. Self-care, including boundaries. Uh, anybody that knows me knows that this is my Achilles heel, self-care, taking care of myself. Um, it's more than just being competent. And I say that specifically to healthcare providers because we think that being competent at our job is all we need to do in terms of taking care of ourselves. But there's much, much more to it. Uh, uh, than that. And finally, gratitude and hope. Practices are not feelings. So thank you for all you do isn't a feeling. Uh, 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 a real gratitude and hope has to be practiced. It has to be shown. Let's talk about learned optimism first. What story are we telling? Things will change and we won't be able to stop it, but we can work together to determine how we'll respond and we can give as much buy-in, control, and support as possible. We can keep communication open. 
We can allow all voices to be welcome. We can never allow anyone to throw us under the bus because we have good boundaries. In the workplace, we can make sure we have each other's backs. And whatever happens, we can sort of jointly say to ourselves, our coworkers, our families, our friends, we'll move through this together. That's learned optimism. That's choosing what story to tell. And I want to suggest to you that really makes it a, a huge difference. We want to try and get past this seduction of the blame game, right? You know, go on Facebook and look at the comments section or a newspaper and look at the comments section and you sort of get sucked into who can we blame for all this? Everyone's responsible and no one is to blame. Uh, um, uh, one of the rules I think that's helpful in the blame game is to be hard on systems, but be gentle with people, right? Large systems and structures might struggle under the weight of, of, um, of the circumstances in our society right now, but we should be gentle with the people who are a part of those symptoms, um, rather a part of those uh, uh, systems because they're doing the best they can. One of the things we want to be careful of is having good boundaries, no matter what our, uh, our, our, our work is, no matter uh, uh, where we find ourselves, whether home or work or personal relationships, whatever it happens to be. We want to make sure we have good boundaries. Professionally, that means connect to their client, but not to their outcome. A firefighter wrote an article not long ago about practicing mindfulness as a volunteer firefighter. He's also a Buddhist. One of the things he says is that he pulls up on the scene of an emergency and he quietly tells himself, this is not my emergency, as a way to connect to the people he's there to help, but not their outcome. He can do his best, but you still have to keep, their have to keep that boundary. This is not my emergency. What am I responsible for? Who am I responsible to? How can I help versus empower? Whose journey is this that I'm engaging in? How am I reflecting on my own autonomy and dignity, right? Am I, uh, am I exercising too much paternalism? Real good sign of that if you work in healthcare is you use the term our patients or my patients or my clients. Another area we can look to is emotional intelligence, improve our self-awareness, do what we can to manage our disruptive emotions work on having empathy for others entering into their experience to try and understand it right and then a little bit of mindfulness never hurts that moment to moment non-judgmental awareness paying attention on purpose in the present moment can be so very helpful as we move through these experiences and try to think about them in terms of post-traumatic growth we can acknowledge and accept that there are existential and moral threats out there. We can find meaning and purpose for ourselves in them. And we can retell the story uh, of what some people call reclaim the nightmares, right? We can take what might be a, a, a traumatic story and rewrite it, rewrite it to talk about what we're really proud of, what our part in it all was. And of course, as we do that, we can continue to access our support networks I think one of the best things we can do to to work on our own resilience is to think a little bit about what areas in ourselves need support. What areas could we maybe use some feedback on or some peer supervision or some counseling? Are we weak in meaning making or 
or making sure that we um, uh, uh, understand the things we can control or can't control, can't control, uh, our community and connection, adaptability, self-awareness and boundaries, gratitude and hope. What areas of our own need a little help? Carla Cheatham uh, is a counselor who, who wrote a little piece I'd like to share. I have choices. I may not see all of them right now, and I may not like any of them, but they're there. Renat reminding myself of this keeps me open to seeing possibilities I otherwise might miss, leaving me hopelessly trapped by my story. I'm powerless to change people and circumstances, but I'm not helpless to take action on my own behalf. I can set boundaries, ask for what I need, reach out for support from those who always have my back. If I don't yet have those relationships, I can begin to cultivate them by befriending myself first, then being the friend I want others to be to me. I can trust that something greater than me, a deity, the universe, love, whatever, has a greater imagination than I do. If I get still, if I get calm and listen, I'll eventually hear it. From this place of peace, connection, strength, trust, choice and hope i can be my very best self and i can be free we'll be right back you're listening to the hospice project on the anchor podcast network Welcome back to the show. You're listening to The Hospice Project on the Anchor Podcast Network. I'm Don Stouter. We're talking about resilience. And I want to talk in this segment about empowerment practices. Um, and and uh, uh, it seems like we all have some, right? Now we're getting into the world of self-help books and, and the kinds of, of public speakers, TED Talks, etc., that really motivate you, that, uh, that help you to be empowered. Uh, some of the things I like are... are uh, uh, just a whole variety of, of ideas. Richard uh, uh, Schwartz is a writer, and he talks about befriending and witnessing your crazy inner roommate. And by that, he means um, uh, being gentle, you know, with your fears and and with your uh, uh, your thoughts that you might think are, are harmful to you. Just be gentle, you know. You get angry suddenly. Be gentle with yourself. He talks about using self-energy in the eight Cs, calm, curious, clear, compassionate, confident, courageous, creative, and connected. I know for me, one of the things that's brought me a lot of empowerment um, uh, has always been um, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz's book, The Four Agreements. And I won't go into The Four Agreements right now, maybe on another episode, but you can Google it. But whether it's The Four Agreements or, or one of the other many very popular self-help uh, 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 books out there. What's yours, right? Think about that right now. What helps you find your way? What helps you get back to compassion? What helps you find empowerment? For a lot of people, simple mindful practices, you know, thinking for a moment about gratitude while you're washing your hands or eating or walking or, 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 or just doing a task at your desk. One of the things that I talk about a lot is that gratitude can really become sort of the magic wand 
to bring us to resilience. Uh, the more we express gratitude, the softer we are toward ourselves and others. It's a, it's a tonic. It's, a, um, it's like taking your medicine, gratitude, a little bit every day. Maybe you keep a gratitude journal. Maybe you say gratitude prayers. Whatever it happens to be, you should focus on gratitude as much as you can and then feel the effects that that has on your ability to be resilient. We can also change what we can. Right? We can make space for sacred moments. We can try to reconnect with all the things inside us that generate compassion. Um, uh, we can remind ourselves, for example, if, if we work in healthcare, why did we first get into this field? And why do we stay? And you can apply that to really any, any job that's important to you. Is it compassion? Is it gratitude? Remembering what our own worth is is so very important. Christian Neff writes, the challenge of our time is relearning how to concentrate. The past decade has seen an unparalleled assault on our capacity to fix our minds steadily on anything, to sit still and think without succumbing to an anxious reach for a machine has become almost impossible. So finding our way to self-compassion, knowing our worth. Being a little selfish sometimes we shouldn't be looking in the mirror saying, I will do for me at the expense of you. It should be about self-care. I'll take care of me so I can bring my best self to you. Right? Listen to that again. I will take care of me so I can bring my best self to you. Uh, those of you who do, who do work in healthcare know the model of figuring out what's wrong with someone or... or um, or having someone share their needs with us, and then we develop a plan of care, an assessment. Well, I want to challenge you to do an assessment of yourself around mind, body, spirit, and behavior. How can you become more resilient? What kinds of things can you do to, to find your way to increased resilience? Make a plan of care. Assess what your needs are. Make a plan of care. We'll be right back. This is The Hospice Project on the Anchor Podcast Network. And welcome back to the show. <clears throat> I'm one of those people who thinks that words and images can comfort and heal. And so I'd like to end our show with something inspiring and and today I want to share a reading called The Whole Heart, Wholehearted Parenting of Yourself Manifesto. It's by Brene Brown. Above all else, I want you to know that you are loved and lovable. You will learn this from your own words and actions. The lessons on love are in how you treat you and how you treat others. I want you to engage with the world from a place of worthiness. You will learn that you are worthy of love, belonging, and joy every time you practice self-compassion and every time you embrace your own imperfections. Well, that's our show for this episode of The Hospice Project. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at anchor.com slash hospiceproject, all one word, where you can leave me a comment to play on the air. You can also find Reliance Hospice on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
as well as instructional videos on YouTube. If you want to pursue a career with us or become a hospice volunteer, uh, visit our regular website at reliancehospice.net. Finally, if you need individual grief and bereavement support, please reach out to me. My email is dstouter at reliancehospice.net or you can call me at area code 760-423-6924. Until uh, next time, I'm Don Stouter and this is the Hospice Project broadcast on the Anchor Podcast Network. Please be kind, be generous, forgive everyone, and love your neighbor, my friends, no exceptions.